0: Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Today we're going to talk about the political standoff in Libya, the changing regional politics around the crisis and potential links between Libya and the fighting in Sudan.
1: He rose to power in Libya's east, hoping to take control of the country's west. But about a year into the job Fatih Bashaga, the prime minister appointed by the eastern-based parliament, has been suspended. Some analysts believe it's because he hasn't managed to unseat this man, his political rival in Tripoli. Abdul Hamid al Dabaiba.
0: For years, Libya has been split between two rival governments. There's an internationally recognized prime minister in Tripoli and a rival government based mostly in eastern Libya in the city of Sirte. Back in 2020, after a 14 month long military confrontation, Libyan factions agreed to a peace deal and a roadmap. Abdul Hamid Debeba, a politician from the country's west, would hold power for nine months before elections slated to take place in 2021. That vote never happened. In frustration at Debeba, Libya's parliament, the House of Representatives, appointed a rival prime minister, Fatih Bashaga, though he never gained international recognition. Last summer, Bashaga, who also enjoys the support of Khalifa Haftar, a powerful commander from eastern Libya who heads the so-called Libyan National Army, tried several times to take Tripoli by force. Those efforts failed, and that cost Bashaga a lot of his support in the East. Haftar's camp has since been in quiet talks with Bashaga's rival, Debeba. They've struck deals to get Libyan oil flowing. Then last week, the Parliament, the House of Representatives, formally dismissed Bashaga, replacing him with his finance minister, Osama Hamad. Outside involvement in Libya's crisis is evolving too. Turkey traditionally backs the internationally recognised government in Tripoli, and indeed sent troops to prop it up back in 2019. Egypt and the United Arab Emirates, on the other hand, support Haftar. But there's been a thaw in regional politics. Relations between Turkey on one hand and Egypt and the Emirates on the other have improved. In Libya, that's meant the involvement of regional powers is less fraught than it was some years back. The question now is whether the war in neighbouring Sudan could be a complicating factor. The
2: rivalry between Sudan's army chief, Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, and Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, known as Hamati who leads the rapid support forces, is fueling further involvement of regional and international players. One of the most significant is Khalifa Haftar, a Libyan warlord who's in control of much of the eastern part of the country. He's believed to have close ties to Hamati. Some reports suggest Haftar helped train his paramilitary RSF before the fighting broke out in mid-April. The town of Gufra connects Libya, Chad and Sudan by road. Recent media reports quote witnesses saying planes landing at its airport were carrying weapons, which were then loaded onto trucks traveling towards Sudan. Hameti and Haftar enjoy support from the same international backers, influential figures in Russia and the UAE.
0: Although reports of weapons crossing the border got a lot of attention, Haftar himself denies backing Hameti. Links between Libya and Sudan and how much foreign actors are involved are murky. But there are cross-border ties in Libyan armed groups in Sudan. So what's next for Libya after Bashaga's dismissal? What should we make of the Haftar Weber talks? Is a plan promoted by the UN of getting to elections by the end of the year realistic? And could Libyans get sucked into the fighting in Sudan? To talk about all this, I am very happy to welcome back onto the podcast, Claudia Gazzini. Claudia, as listeners will know, is crisis group Libya expert. Claudia, welcome back on. Thank you for having me back in the program. So we'll have a chance to talk a bit about Libyan politics, about some of the evolving foreign involvement uh, and the potential for spillover from Sudan. But maybe, Claudia, to start, I mean, you've just been in Tripoli. You used to be based there when the war broke out, but now you're back and forth and you've just been in the city. What was your sense from your time there?
1: Well, There's no doubt that the situation in Tripoli is better off today than it was two years ago when there was a war, when there were drone strikes and people were being killed in street-to-street fighting. Today, Tripoli is largely peaceful. You have very few roadblocks. You don't see armed groups around. You're actually also seeing some Improvements of the infrastructure, some roads being built, some parks, some children, game areas. So these are all new things for the Tripoli residents. And, you know, you ask your average Libyan who lives in the capital and they'll hands down tell you that they are in a much better place than they were. But if you scratch the surface, you still do feel a sense of insecurity. You hear of people that are being abducted, illegally detained. All those problems about the miscarriage of justice and the abuse of power of militias that have been a constant feature of the Libya crisis over the past years have not vanished. So you do feel that armed groups call the shots in the capital. I personally know of three people who are detained who haven't gone in front of a judge, their families sort of despair. And so this is another reality of Tripoli that is not so visible, but it's still there.
0: And do you think what's happening elsewhere in the country, in the East, for example, is similar?
1: When I tell my friends in Benghazi about my impressions of this trip in Tripoli, they say they feel the same is happening in the East. So on the surface, improvements, buildings coming up, Money going around, but dig a little and behind this glitzy side of things there's still deep problems, insecurity and lawlessness.
0: When you say people are being detained, I mean they 're being detained sort of by militias that are close to the state. How does that work
1: well in 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 many cases. They are being detained then and there by unknown individuals. So they just sort of disappear and are loaded in cars. And But then when the families investigate a bit and try to find them, what comes out is, yes, that they are being abducted by some of the powerful militias in Tripoli. And the, you know the, the number has come down to about two or three big powerful armed groups that are very close to the politicians in power and are... It's a very institutionalized by now because they are part of the state institutions. So they are unlawful detentions or abductions. But then these individuals get passed on to the public prosecutor to give them a sense of legality.
0: And um, sort of economic life in the capital? I mean, the shops are obviously open, but I mean, there's stuff to buy. There's things on the shelves.
1: Yes, the life in Tripoli is, is normal. Shops are open. There's everything in the supermarkets. Prices haven't gone considerably up either, unlike other Arab states uh, after the, you know, the outbreak of war in Ukraine. Fuel is subsidized, so everybody purchases fuel, purchases rice, wheat. We see restaurants. I was going out at night and, uh, and having dinner out. And so day-to-day life is, is normal for the ordinary Libyans. Of course, that's not the case for diplomats and UN officers who officials who live in Tripoli. They still live in a state of siege because they still go around with armed escorts or cannot go out at night freely. But for your ordinary Libyan and for me, life is relatively easy.
0: And so... We heard a little bit up top about sort of Libya's, in essence, gridlock politics. Last time you were on, just after the summer, we talked about the failed attempt by Fatih Bashaga and uh, Khalifa Haftar, their failed attempt to take Tripoli. We sort of talked a little bit about what Fatih Bashaga's fate would be after that failure. And sort of now we know he's just been dismissed by the House of Representatives. Do you want to talk a little bit about what happened?
1: Yeah, I remember when I was on, on this program with you, Richard, at the time, I had said that, and this was months ago, I had said that after the failed attempt, Bashaga to, you know, gain international recognition first, and then to enter Tripoli militarily, his significance and his impact on the country was limited. And actually, his future as a politician, as a prime minister was doomed. And even his allies had sort of ditched him. Well, what happened earlier this month is that they formally ditched him. Essentially the House of Representatives, which is the Tobruk based parliament, which had voted him in power uh, last February, so fifteen months ago, uh took the formal step of dismissing him. Formally, the members of the HOR say that there were financial irregularities and he's accused of some form of misappropriation of public funds. But what we understand is that he was essentially no longer a useful pawn in the hands of H.R. members and probably of his ally Khalifa Haftar, who in the past months... Haftar and his children and his entourage have opened up conversations also with the Tripoli-based authorities. So officially, Libya is still a country with two rival governments. Fatih Bashag is no longer the head of the eastern-based, non-internationally recognized government. They put in his place as a caretaker his finance minister, Osama Hamad.
0: And tell us a little bit about Osama Hamad.
1: Osama Hamad is... um, a former finance minister. So he was finance minister under the Serraj government, which was an internationally recognized, tripoli based government that was in power, um, until 2021. And he is a former assistant of the rival finance minister of the eastern-based authorities. So he's bridged the divide over the years, essentially. But he's somebody who, let's say, is politically closer to the eastern bloc, but has happily collaborated also and been part of the authorities in the West.
0: But he's not seen as someone who's going to be prime minister for
1: long. Well, see, when when I ask around about what are the contours of the conversation that Haftar and the government in Tripoli are having, the name Osama Hamad pops up a lot. So there is a push by some Libyans and also some international actors to have Haftar and Debeba join forces and agree on a cabinet reshuffle that would lead to a new unity government. So when we when I have conversations about this with people, I'm told that, yes, this conversation has been going on for many months, that it has reached a point where you have emissaries of the two sides actually talking about the details of this possible agreement. And they say that one of Haftar's requests is that Osama Hamad become Debaba's deputy prime minister with full authority on everything that relates to the East, and this also means finances.
0: And this was something I remember we talked about you know, some months ago about these talks or this hope that maybe Haftar and uh, De Beba would bridge their differences, form some sort of unity government, and this would sort of get around these two centres of power that have plagued Libya for, what, years now? And there's been talk of that for a while, and it hasn't yet happened. Do you see it happening?
1: We've seen the relations between the two sides improve, whether or not they'll be able to turn this informal relationship into something official is still an open question. And I think the thorny issues are who are the ministers that Haftar requests for the position of defence, interior ministry, foreign ministry. The other thorny issue is whether this union will actually entail Tripoli recognising Haftar as the most senior military officers, so the Qaeda Al of the armed forces. And that's something that many people in Western Libya might not fully accept. And the third thorny issue is what does this deal entail for who heads the central bank? And that's an open question. The other problem I foresee in sort of materializing this deal is, is whether the HOR will give it its seal of approval. As far as we know, the head of the HOR, is not in favor of Dbeba remaining in power. Now, whether that's a...
0: That's Aguila Saleh.
1: Aguila Sale, yes, that is Aguila Sale indeed. So from what we know, Aguila Saleh is not in favor of Dbeba remaining in power, but that position could also change. You know, we've seen Libyan actors change in their requests uh, over time. Whether the HOR members, broadly speaking can be convinced to support a unity government where Baba remains. Remember, they voted him out months ago, alleging misuse of public funds and so on and abusing of his powers. So it would be backtracking if they now confirmed Baba officially as their prime minister. And the other big problem is this deal between Haftar and Baba is not really supported by foreign capitals. Most Western capitals and the UN support a roadmap that doesn't really envisage creating a new unity government. They say they want to go straight to elections. And while they are somewhat reassured by these contacts that the two sides are having, they don't necessarily want to see this deal concretely materialize because it would mean kicking the can for elections. Let me also add that broadly speaking, like cementing a deal between Haftar and Dubeba also means consolidating the power in the hands of these two stakeholders who have mixed track records on the basis of what they've done militarily in the case of Haftar, what he's done financially in the case of Dubeba. So some Libyans are also hesitant to support a scenario whereby you are giving full power for who knows
0: how much time to these two factions. And if, I mean, I I appreciate that it seems unlikely to materialize, but I mean, even if there were a deal and De and Haftar could come to some sort of agreement about what the cabinet would look like and Haftar's role in a future army or security sector, what would that mean then for the big militias in Misrata or, or the big militias in Tripoli, the groups that have long been fighting Haftar and his forces? The idea would be eventually that they sort of merged into one security force. Presumably, that's also a pretty big challenge.
1: It's hard to say what the repercussions of this possible deal would be in the security sector, in the sense that, as far as we know, Haftar and his camp have always maintained that there can only be serious security sector reform, unification and so on, after Libyans have an elected president. And this has been a mantra for years. After refusing to be placed under the authority of an unelected official, be it prime minister or head of parliament. So he's always saying, When we have elections, when we have a new elected head of parliament or president, even better, because he really wants to have an elected president, including maybe himself in in this position, only then can we rethink the structure of our military forces. So actually, I think even if we do have a deal that materializes in a unity government, and let me underscore this, highly unlikely, it could still very well be that the two military coalitions still remain operational side to side rather than actually have an integration.
0: And so you talked earlier about when you are in Tripoli, all the building that's going on, construction, and partly that, I guess, is related to the fact that Libya is now producing quite a lot of oil again, after a break in which there were real problems with its oil production.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, ever since uh, 2014, we've seen Libyan oil go on and off. And during COVID, we reached a very low uh, production rate with oil exports being as low as, you know, 400,000, 500,000 barrels, which is 30% of its export capacity. Now, when Libya split again last year with the appointment of Bashaga, there was the risk that as a leverage point against the Tripoli-based authorities, there was a risk that Haftar would close off uh, oil and gas infrastructure as well. It didn't happen. It didn't happen because the two sides found an arrangement whereby the head of the National Oil Corporation, which is Libya's energy giant, was changed last summer, last July. Debeba removed uh, Mustafa Sanalla, who has been the head of the National Oil Corporation for many years, and put in his place... Farhat Ben Gadara, who's a Haftar close acquaintance, somebody who has been for many years in the Haftar camp. Now, this deal was very much pushed by also some Western countries, including in, in Washington. It was facilitated by the UAE because there there was a concern, of course, in, amongst Western countries due to the war in Ukraine that Libya would not fulfill its gas and oil exports capacity. So this deal allowed Haftar to be on board with this increase of oil and gas production, uh, guarantees a steady flow of oil from the areas under his control, because let's remember, eastern and central Libya, where Haftar forces are present, produces two thirds of the country's oil and gas.
0: So that was already a sort of understanding between De Beba and Haftar?
1: That was the beginning of this rapprochement. So we had two rival governments, but we had an understanding that it was mutually beneficial for both sides to get this deal on oil and gas. And the the next step of that deal, we all assumed would be some political reunification as well. But we haven't seen that political step materialise. But the dealings over the oil and gas sector. And by that, I mean contracts for, you know, upkeep of the oil and gas infrastructure, service contracts to subsidiaries have benefited greatly, both sides. So Haftar is happy with the deal. Let's put it that way. And because of this increased oil and gas production, there's, of course, more revenues coming into the coffers of the state. Now, in theory, there's an agreement between these two sides that not all these oil revenues would be transferred to the central bank. The central bank is the state coffer where money is held and that a percentage would remain in sort of in the hands of the NOC. Now, how all of this is managed, is, as I said, is very opaque. But we do see that there is infrastructural development happening in Libya. And and in theory, there was supposed to be an arrangement when Beba came to power that he would not do long-term investments. He would just prepare the country for elections. And this would mean no big spending on infrastructure. Well, what we're seeing now is something very different, where there is a lot of spending thanks to the funds that are coming into the coffers of the state because of oil and gas revenues.
0: And as you say, I mean, debeba he came to power, what, two years ago now? Is that right?
1: Yes, yes, exactly. Two years ago. He was supposed to stay in power only for nine months, but has been around two years, has been very able to survive.
0: Right. And so he was elected as a sort of interim, uh, someone who would hold the fort until elections. And he's still there. And that sort of brings us to the UN roadmap. There's a new uh, envoy, special representative of the Secretary General, uh, Abdullahi Batili, And he has a new roadmap. For Libya. And I mean, in essence, there are sort of a number of different ways that could have gone. I mean, you could have, as you said, you could have worked on a unity government, tried to pursue this, presumably this Haftar the baber track. You could have maybe gone for some sort of constitutional reform, setting out a new constitution for Libya, which has been in the works for a while, or you could try to push for elections and Batili has gone for the latter. Do you want to sort of say what that plan entails and why you think he's pushed for elections?
1: So Batili was appointed last October. He spent a few months consulting with the various Libyan stakeholders and foreign capitals as well, after which he presented in February, at the end of February, to the UN Security Council his plan. Okay. And he told Security Council members that he will support elections in Libya. He proposed to break a deadlock over the negotiations on election laws and the electoral framework by appointing a panel, what she called high-level steering panel for elections. And he proposed to have elections by the end of this year. The reason why he went for this election-first approach is because, you know, when you look at Libya over the years, there, there are three main ways to think of exit strategies from the political crisis. There is the negotiation of a new government, which is what the UN did when Beba came to power. There is the constitutional track. So saying, well, before we have elections, we need to first finalize a draft constitution that was never voted upon. And then on the basis of that constitutional framework, we can finally have elections with well-defined powers for, for the president or the parliament.
0: Because presumably, otherwise, the risk is you're electing a body whose mandate and powers aren't constitutionally defined.
1: Yeah, exactly. So there can be, you know, too much vagueness in the authorities of these institutions. Or the third approach is to say, well, let's just have elections and not bother with a new negotiation over governments. Let's not bother with the constitution because we'll never finalize the constitution. So Batili took on board, I think, the preference of of some foreign countries, Western countries especially, who have, as I said over the years, alternated their position between we need to have first a constitution, and they work on that for a few years, to we need to have a government at all costs, and they work on that format, to now let's have elections. Now, I think the big issue, the big hot potato in that approach is that essentially Batili didn't spell this out explicitly in, in his address to the Security Council, but implicit in that approach is that he doesn't think that Libya needs or should waste time on trying to achieve reunification of the governments in one before having elections. The assumption is we can have elections with two rival governments on the ground. And I think that's a big question. His argument and the arguments of those who support this election first approach is that if there were to be a new government, there's no guarantee that elections will be delivered because once you have a new government, we know that Libyan stakeholders like staying in power. The other argument is that, well, elections are good because it allows those who are outside of the political scene to come into power and are, of course, a reflection of the will of the people. And so that's the only way to really trigger change in Libya. And the other thought was, you know, we've already wasted enough time with trying to get an agreement on the constitution. We'll obviously not go forward with that. So the only way to break the deadlock is elections. Now there's a counter-argument, which is that most Libyan stakeholders don't really want to have elections. Those in power are comfortable in staying in power. And now with all these deals around the oil sector, they have even less of an incentive to accept elections, so they feign support for the idea of elections, but they're never really making that step forward. Also, there continues to be, and we've seen this for years now, a disagreement on who can run for elections, whether we should have presidential elections and or only parliamentary ones. I mean, we've been writing about these tensions and and uh, you know problems uh, for years. So the problem with Batilis' proposal was that he announced that he had a mechanism to break the deadlock of the institutions not agreeing on the election roadmap. But then he didn't follow through with his idea of creating a high-level steering panel for elections.
0: And what was the idea about its appointment? Who would be on it?
1: There were no details to his thinking. What we know was that he thought there would be like some 40, 50 people on this panel He initially announced that there would be uh, local notables, uh, representatives of the two sort of sides of the Libya war. There would be tribal representatives. He also said military representatives. But it was unclear how these people would be selected. Now, the UN in the past did something similar. The the previous envoy uh, or acting um, advisor of the Secretary General, Stephanie uh, Williams, had created a similar panel to break the deadlock. So there is a precedent to this. Now, for Batili's panel, he apparently thought that all these institutions would self-select their representatives, which you can perhaps see how the parliament and the state council can, you know, if you really want to appoint their representatives. But how do tribal leaders appoint their representatives? How do cities appoint their representatives? So at some point, you know, I thought the UN had to weigh in. And make these appointments and make their, uh, create this panel and pull out the names. But, you know, it seems that this sort of idea has, I don't know, we haven't seen it materialize.
0: And it seems quite a difficult one, though, right? Because on the one hand, clearly Libya is in a much better place than it was in a couple of years ago when two sides were fighting. You know, as you say, they've got an agreement on the oil, which sort of spreads the revenue around a little bit. There's obviously communications across the sides of the divide. On the other hand, you're embedding the same people in power, You're not giving other people a chance at, at, at a shot at power. Nothing's really moving forward. But I guess an effort to move things forward could also upset the reasonable calm that now prevails.
1: Yeah, it's true. I mean, elections are inherently uh, destabilizing, especially if you go for presidential elections. Libyans are far from having sort of agreed on, you know, who can be president, can Haftar be president. Can Sayf al-Islam al-Gaddafi be president, the son of late Muammar Gaddafi? Can Dbeba run for president, given that he is a seated prime minister? So, yes, it is a difficult situation where on the one hand, you know, people dream of change. People want to see new faces in power. But as you mentioned rightfully, Richard, it is a state of peace. And so why rock the boat and and risk it all if the current state of affairs is actually looking not too bad for both the international community and for Libyans themselves?
0: So let's talk then about foreign involvement. And maybe we can start with Turkey, which has really been very influential in Libya. So a Turkish intervention in, what, 2019 propped up the Tripoli government, the internationally recognized government at the time headed by Fayez al-Siraj. And really, in some ways, that Turkish intervention turned the course of the war, created space for the formation of the government that De later came to head. Relations between Turkey and Egypt, Turkey and the Emirates have improved over the past few years. How much has that shaped Turkey's role in Libya?
1: Well, Turkey is still very much present in Libya. Militarily, first of all, they still control two, at least, military bases. I mean, they have a presence in three military bases, Misrata, Tripoli, and uh, towards uh, the Tunisian border, where they have Turkish equipment, uh, air defences, and so on. And some of their men, not so many, but some of their men, they do continue to back militarily the Tripoli-based authorities. Now, things have changed compared to where we were three years ago when Turkey led the intervention in Libya to help the Tripoli-based authorities, because Turkey has in the meantime opened up channels of communication with the Egyptians, you know, at the height of the Tripoli war in 2019, it was impossible to think that Turkish officials would be talking to the Egyptian officials who support, you know, the Haftar camp and the Emiratis, who support the Haftar camp. But over the past year and a half, we've seen, you know, giant step forwards in that conversation between Turkey and Abu Dhabi and Turkey and Cairo. So this has meant that Turkey has also increased its outreach to the eastern-based authorities. So Turkey is still very present in western Libya, but has opened up its uh, vision and its hand also to those in the east. That said... Those in the East continue, and the Haftar camp continue to request the removal of Turkish forces. When American officials, you know, approach Haftar and calling for the removal of other mercenaries from other countries, what the Haftar camp says is, you know, first get rid of the Turks from Western Libya. So there's still this very strong anti-neo-Ottoman feeling in the Eastern region.
0: And we will come to those mercenaries, mostly, I assume, the Russians, that the US pushes Haftar to expel in a moment. But Claudia, what about Egypt and the Emirates? I mean, traditionally close to Haftar, that's still the case?
1: So the Emirates had supported Haftar militarily in the war. The Egyptians as well gave logistic, intelligence support in the 2019 war. Now, the Emirates have di- has, has since diversified. So they're still military allies of Haftar, but they have since developed very close business relations, political relations also with Debeba. So from what we understand, they do uh, business now. A refinery in Eastern Libya that was, you know, Emirati property and it had been shut down for 10 years is now reopening. And we've seen the uh, Emiratis take a pro-Debeba position often when there were sort of diplomatic incidents but have not at all uh, renounced supporting Haftar militarily which they still see as an important factor this is in part because Haftar is seen as a military sort of guarantor for for Egypt for Egypt's own national security reasons they fear of course and this has been the egyptian line for years they fear you know islamists and attacks from eastern libya now how has egypt's position changed well e- egypt has always had a very difficult relation with Haftar, the man, they you know they were the ones who sort of picked him in twenty fifteen and started pushing for his support for supporting him, but there's been moments where the relationship wasn't really friendly. That said, they've always supported him militarily when needed during the war. Egypt hasn't at all reneged on its support to Haftar. Actually, Egypt, unlike the Emiratis, for the past year have taken a very very strong anti debeba position even going to the point of walking out of Arab League meetings when the Libyan representative takes the word. And that's the big difference between the Egyptian position and the Emirati position. The Egyptians essentially do not like Beba. That said, we've heard of certain con- some contracts of late being approved for Egyptian companies. So maybe even Cairo's position towards the Beba uh, will change.
0: And staying with Haftar, do we know sort of what's happened to the Wagner, these um, Russian listeners of the podcast will know very well by now, Uh, Russian uh, private military company close to the Kremlin. There were several thousand reportedly fighting together with Haftar at one point. Are they still there?
1: As far as we know, there's still Wagner operatives in Libya. Some of them were pulled out after the end of the war. But estimates are that they're still in the hundreds. So we haven't seen a major outflow of Wagner operatives from eastern Libya or central southern Libya where they were based. They are still operating under the cover of Haftar. You know, in the past, there were rumors that they had been paid by, you know, Gulf countries for for them to support Haftar forces. Now our understanding is that this is Haftar himself sort of paying, you know, taking on the tab for their work. But they're still there. And we hear American diplomats mention over and over again, you know, their concern with the presence of Wagner in the country. And Libya for the Kremlin is a low-cost investment with a high yield. I mean, their Russian presence in, in Libya has always been an aspiration of the Kremlin, even in Gaddafi days. They were already lobbying, I'm told, the Gaddafi administration to have a military base in Libya. And let's remember, you know, Libya is important for Wagner as an operational base not just for Libya but for the rest of Africa. As far as we understand, it is the first port of call of flights that come from Syria, then headed in other parts of Africa. So it's a it's a hub, we would call it.
0: So Libya's obviously seen a lot of foreign involvement, the regional powers that we've just talked about, Claudia, but I mean, for many years it was a priority for the Europeans and to some degree the US. Is that still the case with everything going on in Ukraine? Is there still the same level of interest?
1: Well, Libya certainly is no longer a priority. A, because there's peace. So there's no, you know, shooting, no synetic activity there. And B, because what we're seeing is that some Western countries feel relieved that Libya has been able to guarantee oil exports, gas exports, and to make up for the shortfall of gas from Russia, of course. So it seems that In the list of priorities of Western countries and capitals, D.C. among them, there are issues such as gas. You know, they want Libya to be able to export gas to keep the prices down. Uh, And this is a top priority. And this is what makes them sort of supportive of these less visible, but constant dealings between the two rival camps. And there seems to be some sort of degree of satisfaction that gas is flowing steadily and that gas will increase in the near future as as the Libyans have announced. So this is one priority. Then you have other priorities. For Washington and for some European countries, it's get Wagner out. For Italy, the other top priority is stop the flow of migrants. So you see how these individuals sort of Uh, bilateral priorities seem to be more important uh, than sort of the bigger ideal of having, you know, elections in Libya or a unified state.
0: Could we then talk a little bit about what the crisis in Sudan means for Libya and how people in Libya might also contribute to the crisis in Sudan? So we've got to ask about these reports very early in the fighting between the Sudanese army and the Rapid Support Forces. So very early on, there were these reports of weapons being flown and shipped from Haftar to Hemeti. Uh, I mean, what should we make of those reports?
1: I mean, as far as it's been reported, there were some transfer of weapons from the Haftar camp in eastern Libya via the south to Hemeti. Of course, Haftar forces have denied this vehemently.
0: Presumably, not something that Egypt would look too kindly on. I mean, maybe you should just give some background. Egypt, close to the Sudanese army, does not like Hemeti, who's the head of the rapid support forces. Haftar and actually Wagner, the Russian mercenaries, and to some degree the Emirates, are seen as close to Hemeti.
1: Yes. I mean, there's a problem of allies there because Egypt is a good ally of, of Haftar and Egypt does support the Sudanese army. So certainly Egypt, and as far as we're told, Egyptian officials did uh, rebuke Haftar for transferring or expressing the possibility of transfers, we don't know, but they were told that that was not appreciated. Now, as far as we know, it's still an open question whether they did transfer weapons or not. What we know is that, yes, at some point, some military planes did land in the southern city of Kufra, which is the closest city to the Sudanese border, and allegedly, some truckloads of something headed towards the direction of the border. Now, whether that was a one-off, whether it was anything significant, nobody's really able to say, and and it's just purely speculation at at this point. What we can say, knowing what we know about Haftar and his forces, is that they don't really have too much to spare. If there was ever support, military support, it's not an open tab, certainly at least not on their own. If there's somebody behind him, behind them, that is channeling weapons through Eastern Libya, uh, or will channel through Eastern Libya to to Sudan, it it requires a, a sort of an outside benefactor to do that. But as I said, we have no evidence that that type of flow of support is ongoing.
0: I think that was the sort of sense at the time that maybe one of Hermeti's contacts from further afield was sending weapons and that was the logical way for them to go given the contacts people have with, with Haftad. But again, it's all very uncertain and, and unclear. Claudia, the RSF, there were some uh, rapid support forces fighting or at least embedded with Haftad some time ago. Seemingly, that was something that had been organised by the Emirates. I mean, The RSF, obviously, some of them fought in Yemen, the bidding of the the Gulf as well. You were talking quite small numbers. I mean, how significant are those fighters for Haftar?
1: Well, I mean, yes, RSF or RSF affiliates, individuals, Sudanese, were embedded in the Haftar ranks during uh, the 2019 war. Not fighting, they were never actually brought in as fighters. I think they were brought in more as guards, um, security personnel, so, you know, uh, not very important positions. Now, we don't think that RSF affiliates are still present in Libya, uh, but those institutional ties with Hemeti continued. I mean, we saw one of Haftar's sons in Sudan just before, like a week before the outbreak of hostilities And meeting Hemeti, he purchased shares of a Sudanese soccer club. So we know that those ties exist and are good. But in terms of RSF actual fighters, we don't think that there have been any in the recent past. Now, I have heard people allege that actually RSF personnel was trained in eastern Libya for street-to-street urban warfare. I don't know. These reports are coming from Sudan, not from Libya. So I can't confirm whether that that ever actually happened. But apart from RSF, what we should underline here is that we have a whole host of Sudanese fighters in Libya. You know, Uh, we have many foreign fighters in Libya and Sudanese are a big component of them. Darfuri armed group, some of whom were the opponents of Hameti during the war in Darfur. And some of those fighters or part of these armed groups have been working as guns for hires in Libya for the past years. So when, when we're trying to analyze the repercussions of the Sudanese war on Libya and how Libya can impact Sudan, we have to closely monitor what these several, I think the assumed number is that we're talking about several thousand Sudanese fighters on Libyan soil. What will they do? Will they go back to Sudan join the fight? What will their commanders, what will, you know, the mini-Minawi fighters uh, and others?
0: Mina Manawi is a Darfuri rebel leader or former rebel leader. He signed a peace deal with the government before the transition collapsed. He's now reportedly back in Darfur.
1: Exactly. And what will their commanders and other armed groups do? What position will they take in this confrontation between the Sudanese armed forces and the RSF? So we're not seeing an outflow of Sudanese fighters from Libya at the moment. Equally, we're not seeing an outflow of refugees through the Libyan border because it's a very difficult border, hard to reach, hard to cross. But uh, that could change depending on how uh, the war evolves.
0: And I guess, I mean, this is sort of gets very speculative, but if, as appears likely, the fighting continues in Sudan and it gets caught up in a wider confrontation. I mean, the, the significance of that for Libya, of more instability on its border.
1: I mean, there's no doubt that if the confrontation continues and widens, and if we start seeing foreign actors supporting in substantial manner the factions at war, then it's very easy for Libya to be engulfed in this. It's a weak country, and you know, if, as, as we've explained, with still rival military coalitions, and there's very little sort of oversight. So it's very easy to channel military support through Libya if that's a course of action that foreign stakeholders will see fit for them. So in this sense, Libya can be engulfed. Now, I don't think there will be a spillover of the fighting in Libya in the sense of Libya's rival factions reigniting a war because they're just profiting too much from the peace in Libya now. And also, we're not seeing the sort of war by proxy dynamics escalating anytime soon in Libya. But, you know, things can change with the changing dynamics. There's no doubt. What we can say is that Egypt will most likely stay firm in its support for the Sudanese armed forces. It will try to rein in Haftar and ensure that he doesn't support Hemeti. But what the Emirates do and can do, that's also another sort of bigger question.
0: Claudia, thanks so much for coming on again.
1: Thank you, Richard. It's always a pleasure.
0: Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. On Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on Libya on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Crisisgroup. Group. Thanks to our producers, Kevin Murphy, Heiko Schaub, and thanks, of course, as ever, to all of you. Our listeners, please do get in touch. Podcast at crisisgroup.org or write to me directly, at crisisgroup.org If you have any questions, suggestions or concerns, if you like the show, please do leave us a positive rating or review. Give us five stars. Next week, I think we're going to look at jihadists' expansion from the Sahel into the Gulf of Guinea. And then before the end of the season, end of June, early July, we'll certainly come back to Sudan again. We'll have another episode on Myanmar and we've got a few other things planned as well. So I hope very much that you'll join us again next time.